X-Ray. Welcome to Oh My Dollar, a personal finance show with a dash of glitter. Dealing with money can be scary and stressful. Here we give practical, friendly advice about money that helps you tackle the financial overwhelm. I'm your host, Lillian Carbate. Let's talk about money. Since the inauguration of President Trump on Friday, many Americans wonder what will happen in their own lives under the new administration. Today, we're focusing on one specific money concern in the age of Trump, health care. For many folks, health insurance is their largest expense after housing. And for the 20 million folks who got insurance through the Affordable Care Act, it's a top money concern in the age of Trump. This topic is very personal for me. Because I'm self-employed, I pay $231 each month for my health insurance through the ACA marketplace. Like many listeners, I didn't have health insurance for much of my adulthood before the ACA passed. I have rheumatoid arthritis. I'm lucky that my arthritis is treated fully by a special drug, but that drug costs $3,000 each month, and there's no alternative available. So my number one personal finance concern under the new administration is what's going to happen with my health insurance. I know for many listeners, you're just as concerned. Because health insurance is complicated and the Affordable Care Act involves hundreds of provisions, and we can't predict what this Congress will do with certainty, we can't be comprehensive in this episode. But I'm going to try to focus on giving you the possible health insurance scenarios that may come up for you personally in the next year. Hi, uh, I'm I'm Joshua. I'm a free uh, freelance independent software developer here in Portland, um, and uh, I've been uh, independent off and on for the last decade, and um, rely and, on. Uh, and you're getting your health, health insurance and, through the marketplace. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, are you getting a subsidy for it, or are you paying no. a full full amount? Yes, I uh, I've been thinking and planning on going back to school uh, full time, so um, would unlikely to be uh, able to be employed in any real capacity, um, and that's something that is being um, rethought at this point. Uh, I'm trying to figure out if I can do that. Um, yeah. Um, oh. So one of the so were you planning on keeping your ACA insurance, or were you kind of hoping to get on OHP or school insurance once you went back to school in the fall? I don't know. So that's part of the the problem. I'm not sure. Uh, it's been it's been a while since I've been in school, so I'm not sure the um, the availability of other resources. The uh, OHP, I believe, is an Oregon thing. Correct. Mm-hmm. The school would be in Washington, so I'm not sure if that's even possible. Um, but. Uh, yeah, I haven't fully looked into that. So to be honest, it's it's not uh, something that I'm out of uh, out of full cost that I saying I'm not doing, but it is definitely leading to a lot of stress the last month or two um, with what do I do? How do I solve this problem? Um, so. Yeah, this is a concern for a ton of people. There's definitely a lot of uncertainty in the air with the ACA up in the air under Trump. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to have our guest kind of tackle your uh, question. Thanks so much for calling in, Joshua. Certainly. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very excited to welcome a special guest to help out for this episode, Ben McEwen. Ben has 13 years of experience in Medicaid and healthcare projects. He's the president of Alakai Consulting, which consults to state governments on healthcare exchanges and Medicaid projects. So he really knows his stuff. I'm very excited to have him on. Thanks for joining us, Ben. 
Thanks, Lillian. Glad to be here. Um, and your your business name has a special meaning to it. What is it? Um, I spent about a year in Hawaii helping to build the Hawaii Health Insurance Exchange. Uh, they have a very unique business culture there, and there's a concept in the Hawaiian business culture uh, called alakai, which means lead with caring. Oh, that's great. That's a lovely. <laughs> that's a lovely business name. So our first question was Josh, who is a freelancer who has health insurance from um, healthcare.gov. And he doesn't get a subsidy right now, but he was considering returning to school full time in the fall. And he's just totally unsure what he can do now. Um, he would even be moving states for school. He'd be moving to Washington, which also has a Medicaid program. Um, he's just trying to figure out what sort of things he should consider and what the possible options might be now that everything's up in the air. Right. So in this caller's case, the subsidy when you go back to school would have made it possible to afford health insurance with a lower income. Uh, in some cases, the, your income might be low enough while you're going to school to be on the Medicaid program. That may be the case for you. And if it is, if you're not working or you're not receiving grant dollars, um, Medicaid would be one option to look at. Uh, the other thing you could look at um, now this, with the subsidies being up in the air, one of the pieces of the Affordable Care Act, uh, one of the big pieces, was making health care affordable for the working class. And if you were making too much for Medicaid but not enough to afford insurance on your own, that's kind of the sweet spot where the subsidies help people afford insurance. You can't really count on that anymore. And though I think it's likely to remain in place at least for 2017, and a fair to middling chance it'll be there for 2018. Um, we really don't know right now whether those subsidies are going to stick around. So a um, couple of options for you. If, uh, you don't, if you still make too much money to be on Medicaid, then one path to take is don't have insurance, and that's going to be an option for you, although it's not one that appeals to a lot of people. With the individual mandate being repealed quickly, I think that's a possibility, although not a particularly great one. The second option would be to look for catastrophic insurance. There's going to be a lot of new plans with uh, lots of benefits that fit your particular situation. One of the things with the Affordable Care Act that people didn't like is the 10 essential health benefits. And with this caller uh, going back to school, he may have a very particular concern about health, maybe catastrophic coverage, maybe he's got some uh, pharmacy claims that he needs to make for particular drugs, you can find a plan that'll fit your situation and won't have the burden of paying for things that you don't want. Right. So this is um, a lot of people that are before the ACA essentially had these catastrophic plans, which were really cheap and barely covered any kind of routine medical things. Um, but what the ACA changed, right, was like you had to cover birth control, you had to cover um, like pregnancy, you had to cover uh, certain types of routine medications, and that raised the cost for everyone, right? Pediatric, dental, sure, right. Those 10 essential health benefits um, did two things. The, the good thing that it did was that it made sure that people weren't buying a plan that really provided them with very little coverage. And there were folks who, you know, People that you see sometimes in the uh, in, in the red um, ads about Obamacare increased my insurance. And what they're talking about is that we're forced to buy a plan that gave them coverage they didn't want or didn't need. Right. And for people who stay healthy, you know, certainly we can see that perspective. But for folks who weren't healthy or who needed that that plan, we we made sure with the Affordable Care Act that 
all plans that were sold had to meet certain base criteria. And that's where those 10 essential health benefits came from. And unfortunately, that added to the cost for everyone. So is it likely, I, I know one of the things that was a problem with the catastrophic plans before was that, you know, you would get it and it, would, it was essentially your safety net if you were like a freelancer and it was the only health insurance you could get and you were otherwise healthy. But then if you did make a claim on the catastrophic insurance, you would be dropped. Do you think it's likely that um, the insurance companies are going to have to hold on to people uh, even if they do make a claim, do you think that provision might be kept? Or do you think we're going to see this age of people essentially like the second you use your health insurance, you stop qualifying for it? Yeah, I think it's going to be somewhere in between the two. Um, you know, again, the, the biggest issue is that we really don't know um, right. <laughs> without any detail about what's going to happen in the Republican replacement plan. Um, we really can't say for sure whether people will be able to be dropped from their coverage or not. Um you know, one of the things Trump has said is that he wants to be able to cover everyone. Uh, well, that's great, but we, without the detail around that, you know, we don't know if that coverage might be 10x the cost or 20x the cost, making it um, making it unaffordable. So, uh, there's really not enough detail right now to know the answer to that, and we're just going to have to wait and see. So, our next caller is Corey from Portland, and uh, Corey, you're a small business owner, right? I am. I've got um, a small business in Salem, actually, and I have four employees that I provide health care insurance for. And uh, I was just wondering, uh, we've seen over the last really like 15 years, um, our health care costs have just skyrocketed uh, far, far above inflation. And uh, this isn't something I want to take away as a benefit. So I was just curious if there's any hope for a reprieve in the uh, increases in costs on health care for small employers. I would love to hear Ben's take on that issue. I know he knows a lot about health care costs. Well, hey, I uh, love the show. hope it goes well, and I'll look forward to hearing it. All right. Thanks a bunch, Corey. Bye. Thanks, bye. So to answer, to answer that question, uh, unfortunately, no, I, don't, I really <laughs> don't think it will. <clears throat> so the things that are affecting the prices of insurance really aren't changing. Um, let's talk about a couple of things that do affect the cost. One of them is price transparency. So this is, hasn't really been talked about much. In We haven't had a national conversation about this. But one of the things we talk about in health policy circles is price transparency. If I know what something costs, I can shop for it. And if anyone's ever tried to do this, have you ever tried to comparison shop for a colonoscopy? It's very <laughs> challenging. Um, but... The, the issue there is really not just price transparency for you, the consumer, but also price transparency for the individual insurance companies who are negotiating these payments. So contracts, when these are established, the contract works through um, negotiating a price for each and every service that's going to be provided. It's a very complicated process. If there were a set schedule of prices the way there is for Medicare and Medicaid, uh, it would be a lot simpler, and we would have price transparency be able to go to a provider that had the lowest price for providing a service of particular quality. That's one thing that affects the prices. Another one is increased consolidation. So if we look at uh, hospitals and provider groups around the country, what we're finding is that the prices are affected mostly by supply. So if we have, uh, particularly in very rural areas that are only served by one hospital, or um, maybe two or three provider groups, we're seeing those provider groups and hospitals combine into provider networks and hospital networks 
when that happens, they have more negotiating power and they can ask for higher rates from your insurance payers. Right. Okay. Yeah. We all know where that money comes from. It comes from us. I know that uh, people located essentially outside the Portland metro area in Oregon are, because we're we're a state that's mostly very rural um, outside the Portland area, I know a lot of people only have one option for both insurance and for um, provider networks. And, uh, and it's, I know it's been incredibly frustrating from both the price side, but also from the, uh, just the consumer access side. Right. So to answer, to answer that question, will, you know, will Trump help to lower prices? Um, the, the primary drivers are, are really not things that have been addressed in the, in the Paul Ryan plan or under the Trump plan. Um, now let's talk a little bit about the one that we, we hear a lot about, which is competition across state lines. Um, you know, we, we took a closer look at that at my company to see whether that would help. And what we determined is that although you would have more people that could, or more companies that could sell into individual markets, there's really no incentive for them to do that because they still have to deal with state divisions of insurance. In Oregon, there's something called the Division of Financial um, uh, DFR. I forget the, the words for it, but the, um, the DFR controls what plans are approved and what prices the companies can charge for them. That happens typically about once a year, but there's opportunities every quarter to adjust if things aren't going the way they expected. So that's not going to change. States are still going to control what plans are approved in their state. So if you wanted to con- compete across state lines, you can do it today. There's no barrier to do that. Um, the state divisions aren't going away. So you just you just have to be motivated as an insurance company to bid on multiple states, essentially, right? Yeah, now. there has to be. Well, there's two things you really need to compete across state lines. One of them is approval from the state agency that operates there, and the other is a provider network. And if you don't have good relationships with the provider network and can't negotiate good deals, it's hard to make money in that market. Um, so this actually brings us to one of the next questions that we had. Um, We've had a couple listeners write in with some questions. Um, a lot of folks are concerned they're on Oregon Health Plan, which is the Medicaid in Oregon. It's called Apple Health in Washington. Um, and a lot of them are wondering if they're on the edge of the income. So the way health insurance works right now, if you don't get it through your employer, you if you are low income, you qualify for the Oregon Health Plan if you're under a certain bracket uh, income bracket. But if you're slightly above that, you can qualify to get them on the exchange, which is healthcare.gov. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you know where the cutoff is? Um, it depends on how many people are in your household and a couple other factors. Uh-huh. Um, it's uh, it's fairly low. I think it's around $20,000 for an individual. Um, and... But, you know, if you're self-employed or if you do, um, you do, you know, multiple hustles and you might be able to adjust your income, some folks are actually wondering if maybe they should overestimate their income for this year and try to meet that income so that they can qualify to get plans through the exchange. Hmm. And the reason they would do that is um, Oregon Health Plan, there's a lot of worries that Medicaid is going to immediately get cut under the new administration. It's very costly, and most of it is paid for by the federal government under the expansion. So even though Oregon is very blue and uh, a big fan of all of the people who have gotten health insurance under the Oregon Health Plan, we probably don't have money as a state to be able to fund it. 
Um, so some people are just wondering about the practicality of maybe getting on a marketplace plan if their income's right on the edge. And uh, because possibly the marketplace plans will stick around longer than Oregon Health Plan will. Yeah, I think that's actually a riskier uh, path because uh, if you look, if you take a look at um, Medicaid, which there's Medicaid program in all 50 states, so um, it's a federally funded plan, but it's administered at the state level. So every state's Medicaid program is a little bit different. Um, one of the things we saw when we implemented the Affordable Care Act, and I was there in 2010 in this business to help states plan for what they were going to do to comply with the Affordable Care Act, it, it takes time. And in the case of the ACA, it took three years for uh, between the time the act was passed in 2010 and 2013 when the first insurance exchanges came online for that implementation to occur. And even today in 2017, seven years later, we're still dealing with a lot of policy impact from the Affordable Care Act and things are changing. Now all of that's going to be repealed and, and rolled back and new Medicaid policies are going to be put in place, but it doesn't happen overnight. And so I think, you know, for folks who are on Medicaid who are worried, um, I think right now your best bet is to stay on Medicaid. It's a great plan that's provided to folks who are under a certain income level. That's not going to change. Um, what will change is um, how states deal with the dollars they do have to spend. So um, let's talk about Medicaid block grants for a minute. Trump's indicated a desire to follow Paul Ryan's recommendation of transitioning Medicaid to block grants for every state. So what, what does that mean? Um, instead of today where the more people you have enrolled in Medicaid, the more federal dollars you get, um, what's going to happen is the, the government's going to give a set amount of money to each state. And it's not determined yet how that's going to happen. Um, the theory is that it will be based on population, but we don't know yet exactly how that's going to roll out. So states will need to figure out how to make the most of the dollars they do get. And what that means is that there's going to have to be some combination of a cut in benefits to existing Medicaid recipients, a cut in enrollment, meaning changing the eligibility rules, or there could be some sort of third way, like changing, charging co-pays for some of the services. Mm. Right, because uh, right saw now some of that in activity Oregon. in places like Iowa, where um, recipients who are between 100 and 138% of FPL, of the federal poverty level, were charged small co-pays, like $5 a month, uh, to be on the Medicaid plan. And what we found is that that introduces more administrative overhead than you actually receive in, in premiums. So, um, you know, there's no easy answers here. Uh, the, the bottom line for folks who are wondering, should I, is it better to be on Medicaid or is it better to be on a, an ACA plan right now? My advice is to stay on Medicaid um, and find a way to improve your situation just to do better overall. Um, yeah. So is there any worry that, you know, pre-existing conditions was a huge concern uh, for me personally um, before ACA passed? And one of the worries was that if you are qualifying for OHP, Medicaid, and you have a pre-existing condition, if you and if the state is not able to fund it, if there ends up not being Medicaid expansion money, you know, Oregon is not a very rich state, even though we're very blue and supportive of Oregon Health Plan, um, there was a worry if people end up with a gap in coverage 
um, that if the pre-existing conditions clause gets removed, they won't qualify for insurance in the future because health insurance companies will be able to refuse based on pre-existing conditions. Do you think that there's going to be enough lead time? You know, you're saying that the implementation took a really long time. Do you think it's very likely that people on Medicaid, on OHP, are going to know far enough in advance that they're going to be able to get coverage and avoid that pre-existing conditions problem? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, the reality of the pre-existing condition issue, uh, that's something that uh, insurance companies have been fighting against for a long time, and it does add quite a bit of cost uh, to everybody's plans. So one of the issues with, um, with this uh, problem is that you have people you want to cover them. I think we as a country can look at the way that our healthcare works and say, we don't want to deny services to someone. If someone's on Medicaid and they receive all the services they need to stay healthy, why should someone who's actually working and paying for a plan not be able to get those same services? Why would they be denied coverage? And so, you know, it creates a certain amount of moral hazard, I think, and, and that's one of the policy issues that needs to be debated and worked through. Um, so against that backdrop, I think we can also look at what, the Republicans have been saying about the plan that they want to implement. And one of the things we keep hearing is that everyone will have an opportunity to be covered. We don't know the details around that, but that's all the information we have today. I think introducing some sort of mechanism that would prevent people from being covered at all, unless they completely lost their job, uh, you would have situations that let people have to choose between no coverage at all or quitting their job and going on Medicaid just so they could get the services they needed to stay alive. Right. All right. I think that's everything. Thank you so much. This was so super so valuable. Much. You answered this all much better and much more thoroughly then. So the, the lesson is don't panic. Yep. Kay. That's right. Great. Don't panic. Things, these changes take time and we'll have an opportunity to react to the changes as they're passed. So what we learned from the Affordable Care Act took three years for the, all of those massive changes to be implemented, and we're still doing it seven years later. So I think we'll see a similar sort of timetable for whatever the current administration comes up with. All right. Thank you so much. Yep. Great. <laughs> all right. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Have a good one. Bye. That wraps our show for today. Our producer is Will Romy. Our intro music is by Aaron Parecki, and I'm Lillian Kerbake, your personal finance educator and host. Thank you for listening. Until next time, remember to manage your money so it doesn't manage you. And don't panic. We're dedicated to making sure that every week, Oh My Dollar is helpful and approachable. We make this show for you, so we want to know what you want to hear about. We've put together a super short survey to find out what topics you're most interested in. Take the 30-second survey at ohmydollar.com slash survey. I'm really excited to announce a new partnership that Oh My Dollar has with Broadspace, a women's art and work collective based here in Portland. Broadspace will be hosting a cohort of Get Your Money Together Bootcamp in March of this year. I'm so excited to be helping women reach their creative and business goals by conquering their money issues with a dash of glitter and helping them create their new financial story. If you're interested in joining this glitter-filled four-week personal finance bootcamp, you can find out more at ohmydollar.com slash broadspace.